here is um, all the stuff I was going to put together and did not. Because uh, <laughs> I, I want us not just to look at the books of the prophets because they're fascinating and there's all sorts of neat stuff going on in them and scary stuff and horrible stuff. But, um, and I've kind of shared before, that there, when going through the prophets the last time, which was several years ago now, um, the thing that, that really struck me, and, and I'm going to be putting together some stuff and getting it up online and, and, and having that available, but some of the things that really struck me were um, the importance, I believe, of understanding the, the two-part message in each of the prophets. Uh, we've talked before about the word et, the Aleph Tav. And uh, just you know, quick summary for, for the recording um, and for the young people who may not have heard it. But you know, Revelation has Yeshua saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And in Greek, Alpha and Omega are the first and the last letters of the alphabet. In Hebrew, it's Aleph and Tav. So in Aramaic and Hebrew, it would have been... Um, it would have been the Aleph and the Tav that were the first and last letters, the beginning and the end. But Aleph Tav also is the word, the, the way you pronounce that is et. And it's used as a direct object marker in Hebrew. And it happens to be the one word that nobody seems to know how to translate. It's just left out. Of, of the, you know, the translations, or it's, um, and there's different markers in the Hebrew text when you encounter it, you know, and there's, there's not, there's not a, if you have like an interlinearity, or an, I'm sorry, interlinear Bible, where it has the Hebrew word and the word or the, the, you know, the small phrase that it represents, when you get to et, there's just nothing there. And the even more interesting thing about that is that um, the word et is found in Genesis 1-1. And when it's in there, um, because the letter, uh, the, 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 the letter uh, Tav, the original shape before the Babylonian exile was uh, a cross. And the, the letter signifies a sign or, um, you know, meaning of something. So you have Aleph Tav, which means basically first meaning or father meaning or, or father sign. Um, and ultimately, with its original shape, you have sign being the cross, so, so in a sense, that was the sign that was to be, you know, the sign that you're looking for was originally that. And then after the Babylonian exile, it changed, which in a sense blinds people to it because the sign isn't there anymore. And the reason I'm going into all of that and, you know, and I, I just, it gives such different meaning and new inspired meaning to John when his gospel starts with, in the beginning was the word, mm -hmm. and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word was born of flesh and dwelt among us, mm -hmm. 
But Aleph Tav, who in Revelation, John has him saying, I am the Aleph and the Tav. So I, I believe the very, very strong argument can be made that that is the word and that that word is, you know, representative of Yeshua and that, mm-hmm. that he is the Aleph Tav. Mm-hmm. Now, what that has to do with Hosea <laughs> is when <laughs> we were really fascinated by the fact when we started studying this before that each of the prophets is understood to have a message for their day. Mm-hmm. And a message for the end of days. So our thought going into it was looking at things, um, coming from a position like looking at Joseph's dreams. Okay, two dreams. One dream was about his day. The other dream comes up again in Revelation when the sun and the moon and the stars all bow down. So... We, we approach it with this idea that in order to understand properly the second part of it, we need to understand the meaning and the symbolism and the application of the first part of it. So if we can understand the, the prophetic word for their generation, we can use that as foundational for helping us interpret and try and understand more about the future prophecy without going off in strange directions. It, it, you know, we, you can never really understand prophecy until it's in retrospect because it's everybody's best guess. But trying to allow the, the prophet's own visions to, to give the structure and, and trying really hard not to go outside of that into some well, wait, you know, if we do this with it, then it could be this, you know, and, and just kind of letting it, letting it provide its own structure. And one of the questions that came up one of the days we were studying was, is it really, how do, how do we know that that prophecy is not just about some future day that already happened? You know, how do we know that it's not about you know, something else in the past. Like it just, it just one, of, one of the questions that we were asking. Well, there's a point in each of the prophets, the, the books of the minor prophets, where you finish one obvious prophecy, and it, it says, you know, and then in the end of days or in the future days or in the different, the different ways that it's approached. But in that second half, all of a sudden, you start seeing Aleph Tav, Aleph Tav, Aleph Tav, Aleph Tav. And you don't see that in the first section. And that shocked us. And when we first realized that in one of them, we went, wait, let's go back and see if that's going on in the others. And it was. The prophecy, the, the prophecy for each of their days, mm-hmm. you don't find Aleph Tav. Prophecy for future days, end of days, Aleph Tav appears. Oh, okay. And and that was exciting. That you know, what, I, I have no doubt that we do not at all understand the full implication of that by any means. But just seeing that was pretty cool, you know. So um, so that's one of the things that that I'm hoping to get some notes up about. I mostly today kind of wanted to talk about just some foundational, you know, when is Hosea dated? Um, you know, what are some of the different different thoughts about it and the different resources here that I, that I've got, I've got, um, old Testament survey and this is, uh, you know, 
not new because it's back from when I was in seminary. It's a second edition. There's probably a third or a fourth out by now. Um, but it's Old Testament survey um, put together by uh, Eerdmans. And then, so this we used in one of my, my classes. This I actually picked up, I believe, at a Walgreens. Are you kidding me? No, and it was so, it's the complete guide to the Bible. Uh-huh. An illustrated, easy-to-follow reference covering both the Old and New Testaments. Um, and it's, it's by Stephen M. Miller, who's the author of Who's Who and Where's Where in the Bible. And just a very handy little resource book that I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to get this. this i, I got to see what's in this. Why is this at Walgreens? And it's actually, it's actually quite good. It just, it's all like little blurbs and little summaries. It doesn't go a lot into you know, deep theological concepts, but it's, it's very much a quick reference of, of, you know, this is the time that they think it appeared. Here's some little things about it that people think, um, you know, here's a little handy note for you. And that's for each book? It's got, yeah, got a section on, on each book. Oh my God. And it's quite, it's quite fascinating. Yeah, Walgreens. Yeah, I mean, it's just a great little introductory resource that that I was really surprised. And I got it there a long time ago, but I'm sure you could get it on Amazon. Um, can we go close those doors, please? That's really loud. Um, so I'm trying to get to. So here's Hosea, which which he has subtitled "The Prophet and the Hooker," which is unfortunate because that's one of the things we're going to talk about. Can is subtitled it. I'm not even joking. Uh, <laughs> I know. It's like, okay. Um, But that is a general general interpretation. So that's one of the things that we're going to go. Like I said, you know, not a book I'd use for deep theological study, but, you know, informational notes and resources. Uh, And then I just printed out the, the excerpt from Jewish Encyclopedia Online, just the their website. Um, but basically, it is it is generally dated. Um, I'm trying to see if they have. No, I didn't put that on there. Okay. Um, they have like in Jewish encyclopedia. They talk about the nature of his prophecy. Shows that he appeared at a time when the kingdom of Israel, which reached the zenith of its power under Jeroboam the second, which is also what the Old Testament survey references as the time. Can you turn the air on? On. Yeah, um, and and yeah, it says Jeroboam, but there's but there's two Jeroboams because remember when we were going through First and Second Kings, all the times that the names were reused, and it, it just gets confusing. Yeah, so the the thought of it um, is that it's it's under Jeroboam the second, which would be approximately seven eighty two to seven forty one BC, and the the power their power had begun to decline so it's like just over the zenith so just everything's going really great they've actually been having a lot of prosperity and a lot of you know everything's wonderful and then not so much um so they're they're thinking that it's dated probably around 750 bc 750. yeah it says the first part of the book more particularly chapters one through three dates from this time for according to four the crime of jehu had not yet been atoned and it was avenged only after the murder of Zechariah, son of Jeroboam II, which is in 743 BC. So, so there's indicators in the text of what has and hasn't happened. And, and you know, we saw, uh, I'm, 
you know, I think Hosea was the one that they went running to. You know, she pretended, was that the one that she pretended to be, the queen pretended to be someone else? And oh. I don't remember if that was him. But, I mean, there's we, we encountered the different prophets. I know he came up in first, you know, in the second Kings. We right. saw him, and it mentions him. Um, and, you know, when you're going through, it's always, oh, is that the, usually, yes, yes, that's the, <laughs> that, that is him. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so, so that's, um, going to get started with that. One of the things that, that I made note of, um, that I think is really interesting, hey, come on in, is that, um, the, one of the things that's significant about Hosea is that it's included in in a scroll called the Book of the Twelve, and um, it, it's it's twelve minor prophets all written on one scroll, and it's the one that's the the, the first one. It's at the head of that, so it opens up the the discussion of it. So we'll go ahead and and one of the things, one of the questions that comes up is, did Hosea actually do the things, or was this written in such a way that it's more um, theatrical, if you will, you know, more dramatic to get attention? Um, we're doing Hosea, by the way. Okay. <laughs> um, and there's, you know. A lot of a lot of scholars tend to think that it was more that it was told, you know, in, as as a as a storytelling. They didn't necessarily go out and do all these things, but it didn't necessarily happen like that. Well, that it didn't that perhaps it didn't actually happen, oh. but that it was more. This was the prophetic story oh. that God gave him. This was the picture that God was using him to communicate. Okay. I don't. I, I think that. I know some people have a position, well, if it didn't literally happen the exact way it did, then I, I can't believe it. But I I kind of want to cry for Hosea when I think that he maybe really did have to do all these things. And so I'm okay with it being a story that he's sharing for, for God, you know, to, to try and teach something. But if he did do it, if this was something he had to do, then, um, you know, that's even more intense of a message. Uh, and there was something in here that talked about that, though. Um, let's see. It says, for the authenticity, the authenticity of Hosea's prophecies is evidenced by their eminently individualistic and subjective character, consistently maintained throughout. Various additions, however, seem to have crept into the original text. Um, and, and so over time, it may have had a few things, you know, detailed or added. So this has been objected that, uh, let's see. <laughs> and they don't really talk about that in here. I'm trying to remember where I had seen that. But it might just have been something I was flipping through. Anyway. You know, for the purpose of studying it, though, I want to approach it as this actually happened because it says it happened. And one of the things, it's really interesting, one of the best courses on the Bible I ever took at ASU was in the English department. What? Because, seriously, it was because in the theological department, most of the focus is on, 
Is it true? Is it accurate? Did it happen? Did it happen at that day? Did it happen with that dating? What's the most reliable source we can find on it? Why does it say this? What was the point of this? And in the English department, he started the class talking about the fact that we approach literature, which the Bible is. We approach literature with, in, in theater we call it, the willing suspension of disbelief. Okay? We approach it and we accept it as whatever it says it is. We don't go to the dictionary and try to make it a love poem. You know, it's a book of definitions. That's what it says it is. That's what it provides you. And the Bible says it is the word of God. And so, you know, he, we went into it. He said, so if this is what the Bible says about itself, and we accept that as we read it, what does that mean? You know, how should that impact you? What does that say? If God is saying, this is my word to you, how, what is he saying? And the book of Hosea says that this happened. So we're going to accept, for purposes of reading through and studying, that it happened exactly as he's saying. Everybody else can debate whether it literally happened or, you know, whatever. But we're, we're going to go into it saying... But I mentioned the debate and stuff because it will come up. If, it, you know, if you're ever talking about Hosea with someone, they might pull out some, you know... Well, I read such and such says this. And I don't want you to be surprised that there's controversy. Not that you'd ever be surprised that there's controversy over anything in the Bible. But, <laughs> but as we start in Hosea 1, it says, The Lord's word that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord spoke at first by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of prostitution and children of unfaithfulness, for the land commits great adultery, forsaking the Lord. Now, that's where you get this other books, The Prophet and the Hooker, you know. Yeah. But, but this is that word that we talked about a lot that is so often translated prostitute but really means a woman of unfaithfulness. So it may be that she was put out by another man because she cheated on him, um, or he had good reason to believe she was cheating on him. She may have been prostituting herself. She may have been with someone and not been married and not gotten married and, and have a child by that or, you know. so. When we have to not think of the way we look at, you know, when we hear the word prostitution, we have a very specific image that comes to mind. And, and that's not what the Hebrew is communicating. She, she's a woman who is of loose moral fiber. <laughs> she's, she's not a woman of faithfulness. She's a woman who, you know, is, is quick to stray. Uh, not a devoted, good, you know, Jewish Torah living wife. She's not worried about your, your Sabbath meal. She's out, you know, talking to somebody, flirting with some guy, you know, watching the, the yard work or whatever. You know, she's, <laughs> she's, she's wanting more of a soap opera life than a, than a documentary, you know. So, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblime, and she conceived and bore him a son. The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. 
Uh, oh, he says, oh, going back actually to two, when he says, go and take for yourself a wife, uh, you know, of whoredom is, is the way it's more traditionally uh, done, and children of unfaithfulness, for the land commits great adultery forsaking the Lord. Okay, so one of the things about the prophets is what God tells them to do or what God tells them to talk about in, in imagery is to give a picture to the people who hear it um, and that picture is supposed to help them understand. It's like Nathan, you know, with, with David. You know, there was a man, yeah. and, and, and he had a sheep, you know. And, and, and it's not, he didn't go in, you know, guns blasting, you're an adulterer, you know. And, and there's a story. It's a gentle, you know, it lets you find yourself in it. And really, when we read these, like even with the parables, when you approach the stories and when you, you're supposed to, Figure out who you are supposed to be connecting with in the story. When Yeshua told the parables, there was a cultural expectation that you would connect with someone in the parable and it would teach you something about yourself. You don't necessarily connect to everybody in the parable every time you hear it, but you you might find that the first time you read that, you go, oh, I relate to, like the one with uh, the lost son. There might be a season of your life where you relate to him. There might be a season where you relate to the brother. There might be a season where you relate to the father because yeah. you're in different places. So, so he's telling him to go do this because the land commits great adultery forsaking the Lord. So right here we have Hosea is cast in the role of God and Israel is Gomer. Um, so he went and took Gomer. Um, the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, back in, ver- in chapter four, or verse 4, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and will cause the kingdom of the house of Israel to cease. It will happen in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So, um, Wait, the valley of his son? The valley of Jezreel. No, she, he's, calling, he's telling him to name him Jezreel. After, yeah. the after the valley of Jezreel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, other way around. Um, so, the, so then in Hosea 2, or I, I'm sorry, verse 6, Hosea 1. Man, it's one of those days. Um, so she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then he said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel that I should in any way pardon them. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. Okay, so what he's saying here is no more mercy for Israel, no more mercy for the, the northern kingdoms. Mercy for Judah, um, but not through any means that they can take credit for it. Okay, not by their military might, not by their ability to fight their way out of things. Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhama, she conceived and bore a son. He said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be yours. And, and you know, with the, oh, these children, <laughs> just think, as you're growing up, you know, what's your name? My name is Lo Ami because God says you're not his people. I mean, you know. Yeah. 
You know, it's like, oh, I don't want to name, oh, that's so sad. You know, what's your name? Lo Ruhama, for God no longer has mercy on you. You know, it's, ah, ah. So yet the number of children of Israel will be as the sand of the sea, which can't be measured or counted. So he's saying, you are not my people, I will not be yours. Yet the number of the children of Israel will be as the sand of the sea, which can't be measured or counted. And it will come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Okay, so he's saying, you're not my people, but, and, and, and when he, when, you know, children of Israel being as the sands of the sea takes us back to Abraham. And God's promise to him. So, so what he's saying here is, you know, you, you are not my people. But your children are still going to number the sands of the sea. And the story's not done yet, is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm saying right now you're not my people, but in this same land, somewhere down the road your children are still going to be called sons of the living God. So he's saying, I'm done with you, but I'm not totally done with all of you. You know, <laughs> there's, you right here need something drastic. Going forward, all of that still stands. All those promises, all those prophecies, you'll be brought back. You know, there's, you know, talk somewhere about them being like the seeds scattered to the, the nation. So you'll come, you'll be back. They'll be back. Someday your children are going to come back and be, Sands of the sea, sons of the living God. So the children of Judah and the children of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint themselves one hand and will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. So this is also, you know, there's a lot of talk about the two sticks, and, you know, and, and people all want to debate, oh, well, you know, it, if, if you encounter the Ephraimite movement, well, you know, the Ephraimites, this is who they are, and we're the real children, and blah, 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 and, you know, there's a lot, and it, I'm, I'm so heartbroken when I encounter it in messianic circles, but there's a lot of trying to distinguish between, you know, Ephraim and Judah, and really it's Ephraim because that stick was first and blah, blah. And so this, you know, God's very clear several times, even when that's being talked about, the children of Judah and the children of Israel will be gathered together. There's not, there's, God doesn't make this distinction of value and, and, and you know, putting it, over and the concepts of first, the, the first, it had significance, but it wasn't really the levels we try and use to explain things. You know, it's not like, I love you more. It was, you know, you're chosen for this. You have a purpose, and this purpose is this. Um, so, so, you know, he's talking, everybody's going to come back together. Everybody's going to be unified. They will appoint themselves one head, and will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. So Hosea 2, say to your brothers, my people, and to your sisters, my loved one, contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband, and let her put away her prostitution from her face and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her bare as in the day that she was born and make her like a wilderness, and set her like a dry land, and kill her with thirst. Um, all being part culturally of how a, 
uh, adulterous woman was put out by her husband. You know, there was shame, which is why when we encounter Joseph and Mary, he decides to put her out, but quietly. He's not going to cast her out naked into the streets and, and shout accusations of her adultery and, and, you know, make her a pariah in the community. He's just not planning on marrying her because now he doesn't trust her. And so um, basically this is, you know, Hosea being told to declare, you know, she, she's adulterated. Um, you know, she's not, I, I'm, I'm putting her out because she's straying. Indeed, on her children I will have no mercy, for they are children of unfaithfulness. For their mother has played the prostitute. She who conceived them has done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her that she can't find her way. She will follow after her lovers, but she won't overtake them, and she will seek them, but won't find them. Um, there's a book, if you haven't encountered it before, called Israel, My Beloved. I want to say by Kay Arthur. And it is a beautiful story um, where Israel is personified. And it's, it's, it's a, she's a woman who does all these different things and goes all these different places. And, and the scene that, that is Hosea is just... You know, God is in a window watching as she walks away and crying as, you know, saying, you know, I told her to stay and, and I would give her everything. And she's leaving me for foreign princes and she's leaving me for the excitement that she thinks she can find out there. And it's, it's you know, and God's crying as he watches Israel walk away. It is just one of the most, like, I'm going to cry now. It's really beautiful. Um, and so even with, you know, when God's saying this, there's, there's a heartbreak with it. It's, you know, she's going after her lovers, but she won't overtake them. She will seek them, but won't find them. There's, no, there's nothing there for her. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. You know, kind of, you know, she's in the role of the prodigal son. You know, she's she's going to go out and it's not going to it's not going to be there for she didn't know that I gave her the grain the new wine and the oil and multiplied to her silver and gold which they used for Baal therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season and will pluck away my wool and my flax which should have covered her nakedness okay so this is God saying Israel is giving credit for the grain the wine the oil to all the idols that they're worshiping up on the hills. You know, they're, they're sacrificing to Baal and saying, look, Baal gave us silver and gold. And he's saying, uh, no. Despite your actions, it was me giving you all those things. But since you give them credit for them, I'm going to stop giving them to you so that you see that they have given you nothing. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will deliver her out of my hand. I will also cause all her celebrations to cease, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her solemn assemblies. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, about which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the animals of the field shall eat them. 
I will visit on her the days of the Baals, to which she burned incense, when she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, says the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. I will give her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor for a door of hope, and she will respond there as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt." Okay, so he's saying, by removing her from everything that I've given her so that she sees that there's nothing without me, she's going to want to come back and be here again. It will be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. And there's, you know, there's, it's just such a powerful thing because he's talking about the difference between the relationship that Israel sees them having with her, him and what the relationship he's, he wants with them. You know, people think about it as all the people who say, you know, oh, the Old Testament is just a bunch of laws. It's just a bunch of this. You know, he's saying, I, I'm not your master. Don't do these things out of some weird obligation. Don't do these things because you don't want me to be mad at you. You know, I'm your husband. This is, this, the relationship is supposed to be this intimate thing. It's why, you know, in the Hebrew, all the, the commandments say, when you love me, these are the things you'll do because it's the evidence of the love, not what makes him love you or not, you know, not what proves. You can do all those things and not have love. But when you're truly motivated by love, you'll do those things. You know, it's like when, when issues come up and I'm talking to people about the, you know, because you guys know when, you, when people start looking at Torah, it all comes down to, well, all of that's good, but what about these food things? You know, <laughs> we got the pork and the sea fish. I'm just hung up on that. You know, all the rest, good. Yeah, I won't spit on you if I've got an open wound. I'll, I'll, I'll pay my neighbor back if I break something of theirs. That's all good. But, but the food thing, you know. <laughs> So the way that I've always looked at it, and and I think it was just because God had brought me to a place really of not eating those things before I really started to study it, because you know we were vegan at the time, so it was I didn't have that defensive feeling when I read it. But I thought of times where you know I would make something, and you know when I when I cook, my husband loves almost everything I cook, but there would be occasional times where he'd go, "That was not my favorite," and if he made a point of saying that. I never made it for him again because I didn't want him, you know, I didn't, there's lots of other things I knew how to make. Why would I continually serve him something that he didn't like? And because he's my husband, not because he's my master and said, you can't ever make that for me again. (laughs) No, it's what you did right, honey. But, you know, so, so that's, you know, he said, don't do these things because I demanded them. You, You know, you're not under obligation to me. You're supposed to do them because you're my wife. You're supposed to do them because this is our relationship and our love. Because he's doing a lot. You know, it's not like he's sitting up there going, now serve me and do this for me. And, you know, he's saying, I've given you, I've lavishly given you. You're giving credit to the idols. I've lavishly taken care of you. And you're giving credit to the king. You know, I've lavishly done all these things. 
And yet you're talking about the things I, I, that I'm telling you are the good things for you to do going, Oh, all these laws, all these things. Oh, it's so bossy. You know, <laughs> it's like, no, he says, for I will take for 17, I will take away the names of the Baals out of her mouth and they will no longer be mentioned by name. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the animals of the field and with the birds of the sky and with the creeping things of the ground. I will break the bow, the sword, and the battle out of the land, and I will make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness, and in compassion. I will even betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It will happen in that day. I will respond, says the Lord. I will respond to the heavens, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her to me in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. And I will tell those who were not my people, you are my people, and they will say, my God. So there's this picture here of of them being removed so that God can restore the land. And, and I will sow her to me in the earth. Sending them, I'm sending her out. She's going to bear fruit out there. She's going, she's going to understand me when she's out there. She's going to remember what she has. She's going to bear fruit. And then there will be you know, abundant mercy on her out there that I couldn't give her here. Um, you know, we've encountered different times, the land crying out and God saying, yeah, I got to take care of the land. And we're going to get to points and prophecies where God's like, I can't let you be here because that will mean you die because that's the consequence of the thing you're doing. So I've got to get you off the land so that I can restore it and I can restore you. And then we'll try this again. You know? <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I got to get you out of the garden. It's not a punishment. You just can't be here like that. You can't be here like that until we fix this. So he's sowing her to the earth. And then he will have mercy. And and I will tell those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, my God. And with the idea of sowing, okay, this is very much that picture that, that Abraham's children who are the sands of the sea are not all necessarily born physically from him. Sowing them out means they're going to be planted out and that they will be, you know, yes, their children, but also others, you know, that others will come through them being out there, through them taking God to the world. It's going to bring everyone, everyone to him. So Hosea 3, the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman loved by another and an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for myself for 15 pieces of silver and a homer of a, and a half of barley. So in other words, she's out there now. Um, because he cast her out, she's out there taking care of herself. Hey, guys, guys, can you listen? You're really loud. Uh-huh. Um, and so he, he actually goes out and buys her to redeem her. You know, she's for sale on the auction block as, as, a, as a woman, you know, who's available. You can buy, and he buys her, and it says to her, you shall stay with me many days. 
You shall not play the prostitute, and you shall not be with any other man. I will also be so toward you. For the children of Israel shall live many days without king, and without prince, and without sacrifice, and without sacred stone, and without ephod or idols. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and shall come with trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So Hosea 4, hear the Lord's word, you children of Israel, for the Lord has a charge against the inhabitants of the land. Indeed, there is no truth, nor goodness, nor knowledge of God in the land. There is cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break boundaries, and bloodshed causes bloodshed. Therefore, the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells therein will waste away all living things in her, even the animals of the field and the birds of the sky. Yes, the fish of the sea also die. Yet let no man bring a charge, neither let any man accuse, for your people are like those who bring charges against a priest." You will stumble in the day, and the prophet will also stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you, that you may be no priest to me. This is one of the verses where people who say, you know, people want to say, well, the Jews aren't God's people anymore. They rejected him, so he rejected them. Except that all through this time and continuing on after this verse, it's not a state of the relationship of all of Israel. It's, it's about these people who have rejected him and, and, and saying that you may be no priest to me. You know, you, you don't understand, therefore you can't serve me. Be- I have a question. Yeah. When he says, um, because you have rejected knowledge... What type of knowledge? Like all kinds of knowledge? Um, I don't have my interlinear with me. Let me see. I, my gut is to say that it would be probably better wisdom, like like the okay. the understanding of God. Cause, cause I was the, thinking I, it meant like the type of knowledge, like anything that would cause you to live your life more abundantly. Yeah, I, I think it's probably more in... And I'd have to go and look in the Hebrew, but I'm I'm betting that there is more of the concept, especially because of the subject matter going on here, of the knowing, you know, the sexual intimacy that is, you know, when when she, he knew her, and and he's saying, you don't know me, so I have no place for you, you know. It's and we see that kind of in reverse. Yeah, you you yeah, you don't you don't want anything to do with me. You don't want intimacy with me. So I I can't have it. I mean, and it is true. It's I mean, in a sense it's a statement of fact. If you want nothing to do with me, I can't have an intimate relationship with you. Otherwise, it's just called stalking. I mean, it's not, you know, there's no relationship. And and it's more that he's acknowledging that. He's saying, "Okay, so, and, and, you know, it's, um, one of my professors at Fuller used to talk about how God will make overture after overture after overture, but he's not going to violate you. If he were to force you to be with him against your will, it would be against his nature, against his entire character. So, so really there's, you can't be a priest to him if you don't have an intimate relationship with him. 
And if you reject the intimate relationship with him, he can't keep you there pretending to do. I mean, in a sense, you're playing the prostitute to him. And he, that's not the relationship he's going to have with anyone. He says, because you have forgotten your God's Torah, I will also forget your children. As they were multiplied, so they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and set their heart on their iniquity. And again, he's not saying, you know, oh, forget you. I don't want anything to do with you. But he laid out very clearly, two paths, Israel. If you walk this way, this is where it leads. If you walk this way, this is where it leads. And not in a, if you do what I said, I'll give you a prize. You know, but if you don't do what I said, then I'm going to take it away. It's, it's just factually, you know, speaking as the creator here, this is set up to be the one way. This is set up to be the other way. You have a choice. And, and so if you walked away from me, that's where your children were born on that path where there's destruction and on that path where you're out of my protection. You chose that. I'm not going to continue to treat them like you're on this path because they, they don't know how to be on this path. They're not on this path. They can get back on this path. You know, he's not saying there's no hope for them. He's saying very often there is hope. They're all going to come back, but they're out there. They weren't, they weren't dedicated to me. They weren't taught about me. They're over there. I have no relationship with them. As, as, as the, you got more and more people, you sin more and more. And so, and, and speaking, the, the, one of the things, you know, being at the zenith of, of their peace and going into their decline, it's not that he's going to punish them by taking away their power. It's just your glory is going to become shame. I'm not going to hold back your enemies anymore. I'm not going to continue to give you all the blessings that I've given you. I'm not going to continue because you're not, you're giving credit to the idols for that. So we're going to stop it. We're going to stop all these things. You know, we're going to, we're going to create some clear boundaries because he says you're boundaryless. You know, in previous, you're, ba- you're just running around doing whatever you want and giving credit to everybody else for these things that were supposed to be part of an intimate dynamic marriage relationship here. And, and you're just doing something completely different. You know, they feed on the sin of my people and set their heart on their iniquity. So, so they're just, they're, you're all trying to destroy each other. He says, it will be like people, like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and will repay them for their deeds. And again, you know, we have to not go at it with our, I'm going to punish you for this, but I'm not going to hold back the consequences of you being on this path. At a certain point, you know, when, when, I, was, when I was younger and in that phase of, I had decided, you know, I thought it was a crisis of faith, became a crisis of bad theology, and I, I had, you know, this doesn't make sense anymore, that's it, I'm just, I'm going to do things my own way. There was a point where God very clearly, like just the clearest thought of awareness was, okay, one more step and you've gone too far. You need to turn around and we can fix this still. And I, I, I just remember sitting there and, and that when I realized that, and it terrified me. It terrified me to my core because I was walking away from all the teachings and all the religion and all the stuff that wasn't making any sense and didn't seem to have any application in my lives. And now I look back and go, oh, that's because I wasn't understanding it. People were giving me you know, platitudes and sayings and things. And, and 
And God was saying, I want you to understand, but you're, you know, you're here, one more step, you've gone too far. Turn around now. And, and that's what he's saying here. He's going, you know, you're, you're walking away. They will eat and not have enough. They will play the prostitute and will not increase because they have abandoned giving to the Lord. Okay. Again, not a verse to pull out to guilt people into tithing. It's, you know, it's, the giving is not just, you know, it's, it's, they're not giving of themselves. They're not giving of their relationship, their love, their lives. Prostitution, wine, and new wine take away understanding. And so it's not just, it, it's at a point where like, it's a vicious cycle. You go into that because you don't understand me. And what you're doing is never going to lead to understanding. My people consult with their, this is being recorded. <laughs> My people consult with their wooden idol and answer to a stick of wood. Indeed, the spirit of prostitution has led them astray, and they have been unfaithful to their God. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oaks and poplars and terebinths because its shade is good. Oh, we think this is a good place to... <laughs> uh-huh. Let's do a sacrifice here, you know? This is great. And it's just imagine... I mean, God's watching his people. They consult with their wooden idol and answer to a stick of wood. You don't want to answer to me because you think I'm demanding. So you're going to answer to a stick of wood I created. <laughs> what is wrong with this picture, people? <laughs> you know? I gave you, I gave you the wood. <laughs> I gave that to you. Why would you want to answer to the wood? Oh my goodness. <laughs> the wood gives you nothing. You have to carve the idol. You (laughs) see that a lot of places. See that still changes. Little carvings of wood with different faces in it for Mm -hmm. different God. Right, that some person had to create. And it's like, oh come on, people. So they you know, and so they pick places to sacrifice. They don't want to go to the temple. Um, and now this is in this is in um the uh, sorry, I don't know if I can turn that off without the volume there, but the you know he's saying that this they're in the northern kingdom and remember when they split there was this oh they're gonna go down to the temple we need to create new places for them you know hey this looks like a good spot let's build something here so therefore your daughters play the prostitute and your brides commit adultery I will not punish your daughters when they play the prostitute nor your brides when they commit adultery, because the men consort with prostitutes, and they sacrifice with the shrine prostitutes, so the people without understanding will come to ruin. And this is such a really powerful statement from God. And I've, I've been in several, and the, the discussions are going on all the time, but I've been in several discussions recently about the whole idea where a lot of times, especially in church culture, which is so wrong, where women are made responsible for the morality of men. You know, well, if you don't dress a certain way or you don't look a certain way, you're going to cause some man to do something. Where's his personal responsibility? Well, men are weak. You know, I think it's insul- I think it's more insulting to men than it is to women, you know? It's like, 
You know, all of the responsibility is on you for what someone else does, even though you have no control over it. Well, why don't we tell them to control themselves? Well, they don't really have the ability. God just made them weak. You know, yeah, their eye, they that can't discipline their eyes and what they look at. So I guess we have to take that on. You know, no, you don't know. And God here is saying, you know what, you're, and this isn't even, you know, she wore, she, like the whole idea of when, you know, when someone's raped or violated, well, what were they wearing? I know. Who cares? The if they were walking naked in the street, that doesn't give you a right to touch them. But he's saying, just so clearly, you're, you know, because of what you're doing, it will lead to your daughter's, you know, not your daughter's dressing immodestly, your daughters will play the prostitute. And your brides will commit adultery. And you know what? I'm not holding them accountable for it. And, and so it's, it's really it's saying you're, you're not teaching, you're, you're not living rightly as a model for your children. Of course this is, of course your daughters are going to do this. This is what the men are turning to. This is where you're putting them. This is the position that they're in. If all the, if all the men want temple prostitutes, then the women are going to be temple prostitutes. This is your culture. This is what you're, you're casting as your culture. And so the people without understanding will come to ruin. And God doesn't hold them accountable. God doesn't hold people accountable for what they don't understand. He holds them accountable if they're at a point where they do understand and they're making choices. And that's what he's saying here. He's like, you're at this point where you know better. You're heading to a place where generations won't. You won't have taught them. Though you, Israel, verse 15, though you, Israel, play the prostitute... Yet don't let Judah offend, and don't come to Gilgal. Neither go up to Beth-Avon, nor swear as the Lord lives. For Israel has behaved extremely stubbornly, like a stubborn heifer. Then how will the Lord feed them like a lamb in a meadow? Okay, you're not a lamb. You're not being a lamb. I can't feed you like a lamb. I can't continue to interact with you like a lamb. You're being a stubborn heifer. I have to interact with you like I would a stubborn heifer. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Their drink has become sour. They play the prostitute continually. This is the other one where I go with the Ephraimite movement, everybody wanting to claim they're from Ephraim. I'm like, really? You, you want to claim that? Okay. <laughs> Some not so nice things <laughs> going on in there. But they play the prostitute continually. Oh, their drink has become sour. They play the prostitute continually. Her rulers dearly love their shameful ways. So not just they're doing shameful things. They're intimately invested in their shameful choices. The wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be disappointed because of their sacrifices. So, yeah, not such a happy prophecy. <laughs> You know, there's, there's more. There's, um, I think it goes up to chapter 10. But I'm going to try and get those study notes together, and, and especially as we get going in more and trying to um, look at those things. But it's, it's not looking good for Israel right now. <laughs> and can you imagine being Israel and getting that prophecy? At that time? Uh, I think it would hurry up and stop. Yeah, well, you'd think. Yeah, you'd think. But... You know, but what happens instead? Everybody gets, you know, when, when, 
when you go and confront somebody when they're in, in the middle of their sin and they are loving their sin and you go, it doesn't matter how gently. They're very resistant. Yeah. And and they're angry at you. How dare you? How dare you call me out on that? You know, and which is why God so often comes in these parables and pictures, you know, it's, yeah, yeah. Because by living, by, by doing something and by being seen doing something, then your testimony and your, and your speaking becomes about what you're doing and what you're understanding. And so it's it, like with Nathan, you know, he tells this parable uh, that, that takes the very action the king is guilty of and puts it in a different context where it's not about the king. Um, when, you're, when you're dealing with special needs in children, there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot done in the realm of social stories. And, and the, what they're designed to do is essentially to be parables where you, you sit down and you, you know, you can talk to the child and say the child has a party that they're going to, or the child has hurt somebody or, you know, whatever the social situation is. And you create a story about a child their age in the situation that they're in, but it's not about them. So they can look at it more objectively and come up with ideas that if you were confronting them, they would be defensive and not able to see as clearly. So, so you say, you know, well, let's see. Let's say there's a little girl and she goes to a party and this happens. What do you think she could do to change that? And they come up with the ideas because it's, they're trying to help this child. And then, you, you know, then you're able to say, okay, so these are things you can do. And if that happens, this is how I want you to handle it this time. Yeah, it's, you, you remove all of the, all of the internal obstacles. That's how what? That's how God does it. Right. Not necessarily how people do it. Right. And and that's why when we study these these prophets, we're not Israel. We're not doing those things. We don't have our defenses up, and yet. We can look at these things and we can look at ourselves and our community and our culture and our lives and go, where might we be doing these things? How might we be able to change? And not because he's our master and we're afraid of what's going to happen, but because we really do love him and now we're going, oh, I don't think I'm making the best choices if I'm your wife. I don't think I'm making the best you know, testimony of what it means to walk with you. I don't know. Oh, there's some areas in my life where maybe I need to look at the choices I'm making and get those back in line. Not because I fear you, but because I love you. And, you know, it was interesting because after, after we got married, I noticed it. I, I noticed that I was starting to think of myself, not just as, as Crystal, but as Bill's wife. And I would think, what will people think of my husband if I wear this? You know, not because I was afraid or not because there was necessarily anything inherently wrong with it. It, I just, it was like a personal conviction thing, not, a, oh, people will judge me if I wear this. But uh, I don't know. That just feels a little too short now. Huh. Okay. Let's go with the longer one, you know. And, and, and you know, again, not, not, I didn't ever dress, you know, I didn't wear, you know, the, the doily and the formless gown, but it was just a matter of, I'm representing us now, and I want, to, I want to represent us in a certain way. I want people to think about us in a certain way. I want 
to communicate certain things about our marriage. And, and that's why God says, when you love me, these are the things you'll do. When you love God, you would never think of kidnapping somebody. You would never think of depriving someone of their freedom. You know, by the whole defending slavery with the Bible thing, it's just like, when you love God, you would never dream of doing that. How can you, def- you know, you can use the Bible to defend anything. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would not think of it. You would not think of depriving people of life and freedom and care. And, you know, one of the things I've been working with the, the, um, the ministry coach and, and, and some of the books I've been reading and some of the different things talking about like how to minister to this culture today. And one of the things that, that I've been reading is that, that our culture, that where our culture is now, you know, you used to be able to go at it like in the sixties and before when everybody knew something about the Bible, you know, either they grew up going to church or they were, um, you know, somehow connected to, to a teaching about it somewhere. Um, you could take the approach of, you know, converting people and then getting them involved in a local church and then giving them a ministry to work on. You know, you're going to work in the Sunday school. You're going to work in this. You're going to do this job. Um, so it went convert community or conversion community cause. And then in the 80s and 90s, 70s, 80s, 90s, as you came out of that and people were just adrift. There was so much divorce. There was so much, you know, disconnect from families. People were moving in ways that they had not moved before because of how the the market was changing and they had to move for jobs. And, and so then you'd go into the realm of the seekers people started having families and children and thinking, Oh, we need to get back in church for our children. You know, I didn't want it for me, but I want my children to have some, you know, I, yeah, I grew up in, in Sunday school and there was something grounding about it. I want that for my kids. And so we've moved into the seeker, uh, you know, time and all the seeker sensitive churches and, you know, we've got a coffee bar and, you know, we do movies on Friday night for families and, and, you know, we, we do this. And, and so it became about the, the seeker sensitive churches were come join our community. Then we'll teach you about God and you'll convert and then we'll get you to go out and take it out. So, you know, we're investing in you to bring you in, then you'll get God and then we'll send you out and, and and that we you know we entered the the era of the mega churches and now we're in a place where people don't need your coffee bar there's a starbucks on every corner people don't need your teachings they've got access to the internet people don't need you to provide you know all of these types of communities they're on message boards and chat boards and and they want more of that intimacy they want more of that relationship And there's this awareness of, you know, people got on the internet and got onto Facebook and got onto Yahoo News and went, there are things going on all over the world. You know, I was worried about people in my neighborhood, but holy cow, look what's going on in this culture. Look what's going on over there. And and people are able to use Facebook and other social media to get around the news blocks. You know, you might not hear any news reported out of that area, but people are posting pictures of what's happening on their front doorstep. And so we've got a socially aware, a cross-culturally sensitive world right now that, that isn't, and they're not seekers. If they want religion, they can go get it. They can go look it up. They can learn about it. And so what's really impacting the world right now is, is turning that whole concept around and it's cause 
community conversion. Because if you're working towards a cause, you know, if you're speaking out for the right things, if you're being the person who's fighting you know, for justice in this area or saying, yes, we need to do this, and even getting out and doing it, it gets people's attention. Not because, and, I, and I'm not saying that you do those things to win people to Jesus, but you do those things because they're the right things to do. They're the things that God says, when you love me, you will fight for the freedom of people. When you love me, you will defend the downtrodden. When you love me, you will take care of your neighbor. And that causes people, that's what gets the attention of people in this day and age. Oh, you're doing what I'm saying we should be doing. I want to hear why. What is motivating you to get out and do that hard thing? Oh, you're doing it because you love Jesus. Huh. Tell me more. And you develop the relationships. And you have the authenticity because they see, oh, she's not only doing that when the camera's on. She's doing that, you know, it's not just selfies with homeless people. She's actually out there (laughs) taking care of them, you know. (laughs) That was the creepiest, weirdest fad. I could, you know, just repulsed me so much. Yes. Yeah, you know. I just gave him a dollar. Yeah. I bought him socks. Look at us, you know. Show him your feet, you know. (laughs) But you're out there caring for them and loving them and being genuine. And that gains, that, that gives you credibility. And then when you say you're doing it because this is what God says, when you love him, you'll do these things. Now I'm interested. This is not the church of my parents and my grandparents that, that you know, talked a lot but did nothing or, or shamed me for doing these things but then was doing these things, okay? So, so in a sense, we're kind of doing this whole complete circle back around that Jose is talking about. I can't blame people for not loving me when you never really showed them who I am. I can't blame them for not doing what they're supposed to do. You never taught them. Yeah. You, you, you hated it. You resented it. You, you talked about me being your master, not your husband. And so we're in this place now where the causes that we choose and the lines and the sound that we want to draw and the things that we want to put God's name on, it's it's not the moral majority voting thing. It's it's about what you're doing. It's about how you're living and whether or not you're being authentic. And that's what God's saying. You know, Israel has walked away and, and is walking away, and their children are going to be born away. And I can't blame them, but I can't have this going on here. And And when I stop providing all the stuff you're already crediting to the idols you're going to come back because you're going to understand that it was me who gave it to you. Not, not, not with a threatening, oh, then you'll learn, you know, but with a, I need you to understand this. Yeah. You can't keep worshiping the wood, so I'm going to stop giving you the wood. You can't give Baal credit for your silver and gold. I'm going to stop giving you the silver and gold. And then when you stop and go, where did it all go, you're going to understand in a way that's going to bring you back. So we'll read more about it because it's not done yet. <laughs> ah, there's lots more. Cast her out, take her back, cast her out, take her back. This picture of God repeatedly being willing, repeatedly being willing, and um, just the incredible amount of grace that he's willing to show despite the judgment that has to be there when the things are happening. So thoughts, questions, questions?
ideas, fears. <laughs> it's a powerful book. It's really powerful. And, and not in a way that's supposed to scare you, but in a way that, that, you know, I know we can sit and go, oh, my God. You know, and a lot of us have, you know, taken on the role of Gomer at some time in our life, or we know someone who has, or we've watched someone without the ability to stop them because they wouldn't listen and, and watched them go to destruction. And it's, it's just heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking place to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the hardest, yeah. And the hardest thing is if you're not, if you're not Hosea, who's being called to take that message, you're more often in a position of just having to pray about it and, and, and feeling impotent because you can't stop them. And yet God, you know, and watching, talking to a mother years ago about some of the choices her daughter was making. And it was the hardest thing, but I had to tell you, you can't steal her testimony. You've got to get out of the way and let God deal with this. She's made choices that take it out of your realm. It's not up to you anymore. You don't get to fix this. She's got to fix it. So get out of the way and let God deal with this. This is going to be her, you know, trust that you taught her the right things. Trust that even if you're not doing it or saying it or being there, that God's got his hand on her. You know, there was a point where God had to tell my mother, did you dedicate her to me or not? Do you trust me with her? Get out of the way. And it was interesting because when she stopped being the voice saying things, I couldn't blame her for them anymore. And I had to realize it really was God convicting me. It was God saying these things. But I couldn't have them coming out of her mouth because there was, there was conflict there. So when she stopped talking and I was still hearing those things, oh. <laughs> That's how it happened with, um, you know, that you're saying that it brings back to when I was reading the book about uh, Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, mm -hmm. who kind of went astray. Mm -hmm. And that's how his mother was, you know. He would come in, you know, at undesired times, and she would just be right there. And he'd mm -hmm. say every time he walked through the door, his mom would be sitting on the side with her Bible mm -hmm. and the light. And that convicted him. <laughs> He's like, oh, like, why is she always waking up for me? Yeah. You know? and she's but not saying a word. She had been praying. But not saying a word. She had been saying her words to him. Mm -hmm. He still insisted on Yeah. So she would just be right there. Uh, and you see that. Right. You know, when he comes in. And, and he would see she, she, was, con she was consistent. She just, she just prayed yeah. everybody. Yeah. It's, you know, it's really I, a friend of mine, um, you know, and I've kind of shared about her before, but she, she came to the Lord, you know, she, she was actually very involved in, in witchcraft and she was seeking power and, and that was the power to do things and the power to affect people. And, you know, when she, she started asking, you know, she's like, okay, we're not allowed to do anything to that home and we're not allowed to do anything to those people. Why? And they're like, oh, well, they're Christians. Ah. God's protecting their home, and and but but we're not supposed to talk about that. And so she was like, she started realizing. Bill is on the phone. Let's know if we could drop the kids off at Christina's. Yeah, but I'm okay. not right now. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um. So anyway, she she realized, okay, I can do all these things. I've got all this power, but I can't touch them, which means they've got a power that's greater than than what I've got. I want that power. So she started learning, you know, she wanted to know what it meant. And so she understood that it wasn't 
it, it couldn't be power she controlled, but she wanted the ultimate power. And if God's the ultimate power, I want to be tapped into that. That that's what I need. And so her husband was still very involved. And so she would sit and you know, and he didn't, but he wasn't opposed. He was very, you know, fine. If that's where you are, that's what you want to do, go go ahead. So she would sit and read her Bible and and go, Oh my goodness. Oh. Wow. You know, and after a while, you know, he was like, What? <laughs> She's like, oh, just, it says David was a man after God's own heart. And I know you, and you're so devoted. When you get saved, that's going to be you. Uh-huh. And, and she, you know, it wasn't ever, you need to do this, or you need to be like this. And, you know, just over time, oh, wow, it says here Samuel did this. And, and you know, this, you have this quality. When you get saved, you're going to do that too. And, and eventually he, you know, and for a long time, that was just all that would happen. And then he, he would go, well, why? What do you mean? And, and, and when he asked, then she shared. Because he was asking. He was listening. He wanted to know. And so often we don't wait for that point in people's lives. We want to go running in with all the answers and telling them what they need to do to fix it. And that's where that whole log in your own eye. <laughs> you know, leave your neighbor's speck alone. And, and when you have... When you have that authenticity and you have that relationship with them where you can, you can say things and they'll go, okay, tell me more. Or they'll even ask, I see you doing this. Why? Why are you doing this? Because then you have the authenticity and you have the credibility that you're able to share that and it will be impacting. If you're going around just telling everybody, the very act of doing that takes away your authenticity because you're not applying it to the areas of your life. And so, you know, it's, it's really, it's what God's saying. It's like, I'm not going to let you keep giving credit for this to the wrong sources. It's going to stop. Not because I hate you, but because I love you. I can't let you continue to be in a relationship where you think that wood is giving you these things. It's not healthy for you. It's not good for you. It's not, it's not wisdom for you. So, what are, you, are you beatboxing? What are you doing? Okay, stop. I'm going to stop the recording. Anyway, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his countenance upon you and grant you peace. And then I will stop the recording and you may go about your beatboxing. <laughs>